0: This audio production was made in collaboration with audible anarchist from rolling thunder an anarchist journal of dangerous living issue 4 spring 2007 lucy parsons forerunner of 21st century anarchy today lucy parsons is almost invisible to history a hero and inspiration to three generations of radicals in her lifetime she was once known throughout the country as a notorious anarchist, a fierce and fiery speaker, a defender of terrorists, an eloquent and wildly original propagandist and publisher, an organizer of militant grassroots unions, and a troublemaker par excellence. She was famously described by the Chicago Police Department as, quote, more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Lucy Parsons defied the constraints of her time so completely that it should not be surprising she appears so rarely in records of that period. What else can be expected of a person whose full name is unknown – she signed it differently almost every time – whose birth, date, and place are a mystery, whose race continues to be a subject of speculation, whose ideas seem extreme even to contemporary radicals, and who died in near-anonymity, leaving virtually nothing behind. In standing apart from her era – Parsons was able to contribute much to the anarchist legacy that is relevant in her own. She prefigured current anarchist trains of thought in both tactical and organizational matters. She participated in revolutionary upheavals as well as outreach, in wedding militant direct action, diversity of tactics, labor organizing, women's liberation, and immigrant struggles. She was a precursor of the anarchists who read and write for Rolling Thunder today. It is unknown exactly where and when Lucy Parsons was born. The best guess is that she entered the world in 1853 near Waco, Texas, as a slave of the Gathings family. What little is known of her early life comes to us through her husband, Albert. According to him, when they met, sometime between 1869 and 1871, she was a teenage girl living with an African-American man named Oliver Gathings in northwestern Texas. Albert, a former Confederate scout who had joined the army at the age of 15 in search of adventure, became politicized after the war while working for various radical Republican causes and newspapers. He probably met Lucy during a campaign or newspaper assignment, both of which took him into heavily African-American counties in Texas. The couple married, perhaps legally, perhaps not, in 1871 or 1872 near Austin, Texas, Throughout her life, Lucy Parsons claimed that she was of Mexican and Native American ancestry. Newspaper accounts from the time, however, consistently referred to her as, quote, colored, quote, black, or various derogatory terms implying African ancestry. Some accounts written by people who knew her later in life suggest the same thing, even claiming that photographs prove her African ancestry. It is speculated that Parsons invented her Mexican and Native American ancestry as a way of avoiding legal obstacles such as the miscegenation laws, which made interracial relationships illegal. Regardless of her true ancestry, it is certain that she was perceived as black or, quote, colored by many observers in her era. While a Mexican and Native American identity would not have shielded her from racial stigmatization, It might have seemed sufficiently exotic to mitigate the worst effects of 19th century racism. Editors note, regardless of appearance, it is important to respect any individual's unique understanding of their own identity. Speculation and assumptions about why people choose to identify in the way they do often prove to be useless and hurtful. Race, gender, and other similar constructions are never as straightforward to define as they are supposed to be. The oversimplified classifications we use do not articulate the actual complex histories we each embody. If she did in fact come of age near Waco after the Civil War, she must have witnessed sweeping racist violence. The Ku Klux Klan was especially active in Texas shortly after the war. Lucy herself would have been under constant threat. Between 1867 and 1873, Lucy and Albert witnessed or heard about hundreds of murders, rapes, beatings, mutilations, and other acts of violence committed against African Americans by the Klan. Albert himself was targeted repeatedly by the Klan for his political activities, especially those on behalf of African Americans. A bullet from an encounter with the Klan remains lodged in his body for the remainder of his life. Given these circumstances, it is not difficult to understand why Lucy might have wanted to avoid being identified as a black woman. Sometime in 1873 or 1874, Lucy and Albert Parsons moved to Chicago. Although they left the violence of the Klan South behind them, they entered an unstable industrial metropolis in the midst of the worst depression the country had ever seen, the Panic of 1873. Chicago's factory owners fired workers by the thousands and slashed wages across the board. Everywhere they looked, this newly arrived odd couple saw homelessness, poverty, and desperation. Starvation and disease ran rampant throughout the city while the ruling class waited out the depression in the comfort of their lakefront mansions. Against this backdrop, Lucy established herself as a dressmaker while Albert began working as a typesetter at the Chicago Times. The couple immediately became active in local politics. They both joined the Socialist Labor Party, SLP, and Albert became active in his union. But after the city's economy picked up and established politicians grew wise to the SLP's game, Albert and Lucy learned some lifelong lessons about politics and elections. At first, the SLP had promising results at the polls, but as jobs returned to the city, the workers that flocked to the party returned to voting Democrat and Republican. After the two parties brazenly colluded to stuff the ballot boxes in the election of 1880, the SLP was, for all intents and purposes, dead. After some typical socialist factionalizing, the party disintegrated. In 1883, radicals disillusioned by electoral politics and inclined to anti-authoritarianism gathered in Pittsburgh to form the International Working People's Association, IWPA, a decentralized network to provide an anarchist alternative to the various Marxist parties dotting the country. In Chicago, the IWPA was an amazing success. Within a few years, the collectives affiliated with the IWPA had as many as 4,000 members, regular newspapers were being published in seven different languages, and four armed militias had formed along with countless singing and theatrical groups, picnic and clubs, free-thinking leagues, and mutual aid societies. The IWPA found its greatest support in the large immigrant communities that comprised the majority of Chicago's population at that time. Mostly young, blue-collar, and non-English-speaking, Chicago's anarchists were a motley crew. It was among these rabble-rousers that Lucy Parsons cut her teeth as a prominent anarchist. She became well-known for delivering fiery, uncompromising speeches and penning strong, sometimes shocking articles. Her first article for the IWPA's English-language organ, The Alarm, was to be her most famous work. Entitled, Two Tramps, and addressed as a quote, word to the 30,000 now tramping the streets of this great city, the article sounded themes that were to become common in her writing. Quote, Send forth your petition to the capitalist class and let them read it by the red glare of destruction. You can be assured that you have spoken to these robbers in the only language which they have ever been able to understand. You need no organization when you make your mind to present this kind of petition. In fact, an organization would be a detriment to you, but each of you hungry tramps who read these lines... Avail yourself of those methods of warfare which science has placed in the hands of the poor man, and you will become a power in this or any other land. Learn the use of explosives. Anarchist print shop workers stayed after their shifts to print a 100,000 pamphlet copies of Two Tramps for the IWPA, which distributed them throughout the country. The article made Lucy a hero amongst the dispossessed and a target for the quickly mobilizing capitalist class, emphasizing direct action individual autonomy, and a non-ideological, pluralistic approach to organizing, Lucy's writings helped carry anarchist thinking in an entirely new direction. In May of 1886, when the IWPA was at its peak, someone threw a bomb into a crowd of police officers firing upon a peaceful demonstration in Chicago's Haymarket Square. Seven police officers were killed, and many were injured, mostly by the wild firing of the police into their own ranks. The previous day, police officers had murdered a number of workers striking for an eight-hour workday at the McCormick Reaper Works, and the Haymarket demonstration had been called to protest the slaughter. In the aftermath of the so-called Haymarket Riot, the state declared war on Chicago's anarchists. Hundreds were arrested and seven men, including Albert Parsons, were put to death. The bomb thrower was never identified. Of the seven martyrs of the Haymarket tragedy, only Louis Ling, recently immigrated to Chicago and largely unknown in the city's anarchist movement, was accused of actually taking part in the bombing. The others were found guilty of making the bombing possible by promoting anarchism in class war. The witch trial that ended in their executions was watched with rapt attention across the nation and the world. Lucy Parsons went on a countrywide speaking tour and gained tremendous notoriety as a despised oddity in the mainstream press and a fire-breathing hero to the labor movement. Just as her husband refused to renounce his beliefs and beg for leniency, Lucy did not limit herself to decrying the injustice being done to him. For Lucy and Albert, the trial represented a tremendous opportunity to expand the anarchist movement. Everywhere she went, Lucy was met by enthusiastic crowds and aggressive repression. Almost every city she visited attempted to block her from speaking, creating dramatic showdowns with local authorities. Although she was arrested several times, she forged ahead relentlessly with the help of friends and supporters around the country. After years of traveling the country and the world, Lucy was involved in the amalgamation of the country's most radical grassroots unions into a network called the Industrial Workers of the World. On June 28, 1905, she spoke at the founding convention of the IWW and proved once again to be a radical voice even within radical movements of her time. Lucy urged the delegates to form a truly democratic organization free of the bureaucracy and elitism of the business unions. She emphasized the central role of women in exploitative labor and all organizing against it, either as undercompensated workers in the factory, as unpaid workers in the home, or as sex workers in the street, a shocking proposition in her day. She fervently denounced electoralism, craft unionism, and authoritarian leadership within workers' struggles. In their place, she advocated the sit-down strike, Quote, The strike of the future is not to strike and go out and starve, but to strike and remain in and take possession of the necessary property of production. If anyone is to starve, I do not say it is necessary. Let it be the capitalist class. She also spoke of the general strike, which she had witnessed in the great upheaval of 1877, one of the few true general strikes in American history an event to which she later attributed her radicalization. She also did not fail to emphasize that the goal of the workers' movement should not be to create proletarian dictators or reform capitalism, but to establish anarchy. Around the same time, Lucy edited two different newspapers, Freedom and The Liberator, which ran some of her most powerful writing. Articulating her pluralistic perspective on ideology, she wrote, quote, The best thought of today may become the useless vagary of tomorrow, and to crystallize it into a creed is to make it unwieldy. She describes her own radicalization in developing an analysis of hierarchy. Quote, I came to understand that concentrated power can always be wielded in the interest of a few at the expense of the many. Government, in its last analysis, is the power reduced to a science. She spoke out against class society, which she argued enabled, a few to riot in luxury and ease, protected by, quote, guns and armories to make saints of us all. She urged African Americans in the South, then suffering from a pandemic of lynching, to use all available means, but especially, quote, the incendiary, to defend themselves. For the following 20 years, Lucy Parsons was one of the most prolific and popular speakers in Chicago. She regularly addressed the various radical forums of her day, including the Bohemian Dill Pickle, the Anarchist Free Society Forum, the IWW Forum, and the Hobo College, as well as countless May Day parades, Paris Commune celebrations, and picket lines. She was also a regular voice in the emerging feminist movement of that era, characteristically uncompromising in her radicalism and sense of humor. While denouncing women's suffrage as a dangerous accommodation to the state, she also addressed the Radical Women's Forum on the theme that, quote, the majority of men are low-grade morons. She also drew the ire of some anarchists with her cynicism about the, quote, free love philosophy promoted by Emma Goldman. In a time when few had easy access to birth control, she argued that, quote, free love was the provenance of middle-class white women for whom the likelihood of pregnancy was not a serious concern. In this and her unremitting opposition to women's enfranchisement, she was one of the first feminists to maintain the importance of class in the women's struggle. Lucy remained a tireless propagandist. She published a number of her own articles as pamphlets, no, punk rockers didn't invent the zine, and edited and distributed a volume of speeches by the martyrs of the Haymarket Affair. Lucy spent the last two decades of her life writing, speaking, and working on behalf of the International Labor Defense at that time a broad-based group committed to supporting political prisoners. The IDL was in some ways a Communist Party front group, which has led some to claim, erroneously, that Lucy actually joined the CP. Not even the dead are safe from rumors and sectarianism. On the morning of March 7, 1942, the wood stove in Lucy's home caught fire. At age 89, nearly blind and only partially mobile, she died alongside her longtime partner, George Markstall. After the fire was extinguished, the Chicago police seized her entire library, all of her written correspondence, and her records, which have never been seen since. Hundreds of people attended her funeral at Waldheim Cemetery in suburban Chicago and watched as she was laid to rest a few feet from the Haymarket Monument under which her husband Albert was buried. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.